Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I'll get there in a little bit. But as you're turning there, I want you to to come with me uh, back in time, if you can. Take a journey back thousands of years ago to the story of the Exodus. So if you can remember the story of the Exodus and put yourselves in the shoes of the average Israelites. So you're one of the children of Israel. Um, God, through many great signs and wonders, had set you free from your bondage to Pharaoh and your slavery to the Egyptians. You watched as the, as the waters of the Nile turned to blood. You saw the sky go black, go dark. You saw the, the deaths of the firstborn in Egypt as God displayed his power and might in the face of the Egyptians, gods of the Nile and the sun and the Pharaoh. And with terror, you watched the approach of the Egyptian army. And with those around you, as you're, as you're trapped by the Red Sea, you cry out to God, why did you leave us here? Why did you bring us here so that we can die? Are there no graves in Egypt? And then as the army approached, you watched with awe and wonder, once again, as the Red Sea parted, opening a path of escape. After all of your people had gone safely through, you watched again as the sea collapsed on the Egyptian army. And you joined the celebration that evening as you sang, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously in the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. But over the next few months, you begin to experience thirst and hunger. And again, you cry out to God and to Moses, why did you lead us here? Didn't we have meat in Egypt? Didn't we have all that we needed and all that we wanted in Egypt? Why did you lead us here to die? And again and again, difficulty comes. And again and again, God provides. But there's still this this nagging problem in the Israelite camp. Life and slavery in Egypt was easier in some sense than this. You knew where your meals would come from. You knew what the next day would would hold. You knew where your life was going. But this, this is hard Crisis after crisis arises. You don't see the food. You don't see the spring. You see an army closing in on you with no path to escape. I want you to think about what was God teaching the Israelites in their time in Egypt? Did God set them free so that they could be independent? So that they could live their lives the way that they wanted and have all that they needed And always be provided for without any worries and cares. That's not what we see at all, is it? What we see God teaching the Israelites in their time uh, escaping from Egypt, in their time in the wilderness, their time wandering, is not independence. The freedom that God gave the Israelites from the Egyptians, the freedom that God gave the Israelites from slavery, was not independence, but dependence. God was teaching them to depend and to rely on him. They weren't set free from any master whatsoever. They were set free from from human masters, and they were now gods. They belonged to God. God was their master. God was who they they relied upon. They they traded masters. The freedom that they have that they had was freedom from the Egyptians, freedom from human masters, freedom from slavery, but was dependence and reliance upon God. Not independence. The kind of freedom that we see in the Old Testament is not um, freedom to do what you want, freedom to be free to determine your own life. The freedom that we have in the Old Testament is freedom to worship and rely upon God. 
to be dependent. So we move into the New Testament this morning. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. God has set us free from the law, and God has set us free from our sin and from our flesh, not so that we can be independent, not so that we can do whatever we want, not so that we can live lives in the way that we want and determine ourselves for self-actualization, etc., etc. No, the, the reason that God has set us free from sin and the flesh and the reason that God has set us free from the law is so that we can de- be dependent on him, dependent on him. Paul is writing to the Galatians, moving back into, into the New Testament here, because although they've accepted the gospel, they've been led astray by false teachers who claim that circumcision is a necessary addition. And what Paul is arguing is that any addition, any addition to the gospel is a rejection of Christ's work because adding to the gospel makes you reliant in some sense upon yourself. If you add circumcision, then you can look at yourself and you can say, well, I've been circumcised, so I'm good. Or I've been circumcised, so I'm better than those people. You have some reliance on the flesh, some reliance upon yourself. And that is to miss the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that this has been achieved by the work of Christ and that we're utterly and completely dependent upon him. Righteousness achieved by the law divides us based on external righteousness. But in Christ, these divisions are demolished because we are all one in Christ. We are all saved through the same work of the same Lord and God. And what Paul is preaching is not new. This is what we see in the Old Testament. Abraham was declared righteous, not because he was circumcised, not because of what he did, but because of his faith in God, his dependence, his reliance, his trust in God. What God was teaching the Israelites in the wilderness was not independence so that they would no longer be slaves of the Egyptians. It was to depend and rely upon him and seeking to be justified by adding to the grace that we have in Christ is to declare our own self-deficiency, self-sufficiency, to declare our independence from God. We don't need him to achieve righteousness that we can do it on our own. In today's text, we're confronted with two strategies for achieving righteousness before God. Some preach a gospel of righteousness based on externals that results in being righteous before God. But Paul preached a gospel of grace where righteousness before God is wholly and completely dependent on the work of Christ. Paul's contention is any addition to the gospel is treating freedom for slavery and rejects the work of Christ on our behalf. The main point I want to get across this morning is this. The gospel achieves righteousness and fulfills the law not by human effort, but by trusting in Christ's righteousness and by relying on the Spirit's work to shape us into the image of Christ. Growing up in the Christian walk is not becoming independent of the law. Growing up in the Christian walk is becoming dependent on Christ and the work of the Spirit. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the gospel. It is indeed good news The gospel teaches us that we do not need to rely upon ourselves. Oh, Father, I am weak. Father, I am a sinner. Father, I am not strong enough. I need you. Father, that's true for everyone in this room. We need you. We are not strong enough. We are not worthy gods for ourselves. We cannot depend and rely upon ourselves and our own strength because we're weak. And Father, thank you that the gospel teaches us 
to rely and depend upon you. And that because of the gospel, because of your work, that you have also given us the strength and the power to defeat sin in our lives, that you, you defeat sin in our lives through the work of the Spirit, that you don't leave us in our sin. Father, we're so thankful for these truths. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your Spirit will work in our hearts, cause us to grow in our, our desire for you and in our dependence upon you. Father, take away our desire to be independent, our desire to be self-sufficient, our desire to claim some part of our salvation for ourselves, to call out mine when it's yours. Father, we, we, we dedicate this time to you. We want to worship and honor you through our study of your word. Please work in our hearts through your spirit, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. So moving into Galatians chapter 5, verses, I'm going to start with verses 7 through verse 12, and then I'm going to read a little bit further here in a little bit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well, Paul says. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, but I have faith and confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the gospel has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul's not joking around. So major point number one here, the Galatians' walks with Christ were hindered by those seeking to add circumcision to the gospel message. This addition, although seemingly small, represented an existential threat to the gospel. You add circumcision to the gospel, and it's no longer the gospel. A little leaven, he says, leavens the whole dough. We cannot compromise on the gospel because to add to the gospel is to destroy it. To add to the gospel is to destroy it. Paul begins this section by asking, who hindered you? More literally, the, the, the Greek is, who cut in on you? And it's kind of the image of if you're in a race, and somebody cuts in on you and, and gets in front of you and impedes your progress— um, there also might be a double entendre here with circumcision about cutting in on you. Um, the Galatians had accepted the gospel. They had been doing well. But now there are outsiders who are not preaching Christ. They're not preaching the same gospel that Paul has preached. Not the same gospel that they had accepted. But something different that is impeding their progress. A little leaven, Paul says, leavens the whole lump. Leaven is a picture of sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The idea is that sin, when tolerated might seem small. It might seem like no big deal, but like leaven in dough, it causes it to rise and all of the bread, all of the dough is affected. There's no part of it that's not corrupted in that sense. This is the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he demands the church discipline of a man who was committing incest. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you tolerate this in your church, you're destroying your gospel witness. It must be removed. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if the Galatians tolerate the message of the Judaizers here, that circumcision is a necessary addition to the gospel. They have transformed the gospel into something else entirely. Sometimes people, people have this impression of, of theology and theological positions that it, that's focused on the minutia and it leads to divisions. Why can't we just all agree uh, to disagree and, 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 um, and come together? And sometimes, sometimes we, we do divide over too small of an issue. Sometimes we do divide over issues that aren't worth dividing over. But salvation by grace is not one of those issues. 
Salvation by grace alone is so central, so important. Those adding to the gospel have transformed the gospel from merit we receive based on Christ's righteousness to merit we earn based on adherence to external expectations. The expectation that you be circumcised, that you need to be circumcised to become one of us, be circumcised, that you need to follow these laws, follow these rules, um, go follow through on these externals. If we say salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision or plus anything else, we would be placing our trust and having confidence in ourselves rather than trusting in and having confidence in Christ. If the Galatians here receive circumcision, then their mindset becomes, I'm circumcised, I'm good. Or, I'm circumcised, unlike those people over there, so I'm better than they are. They have this, this mindset that I have something to do with my merit. I have something to do with my worthiness before Christ. It is not to rely on Christ. It is not to depend on Christ. It is not giving Christ the glory. It is stealing some of it for your own. Shriner says, commenting on this passage, that circumcision nullifies the scandal of the cross because it establishes righteousness based on human ability. And the gospel is offensive and Paul is highlighting that here. The gospel is offensive because it exposes our inadequacy. We don't like to be told. We don't like to think of ourselves as inadequate and unable to earn something, unable to measure up. It exposes our inadequacy and it exposes, exposes our dependence on Christ to please God, our dependence on Christ to be righteous before him. It's offensive because we want to hang on to some aspect of our salvation and call out mine and claim it's mine. We want some way to compare ourselves to others and think that we are superior, something that we can point to, something we can hold on to. The gospel, however, is it is all Christ. It is all Christ. The gospel eliminates comparisons because we accept that we cannot earn it and that we're all in the same boat, dependent on the grace and mercy of an almighty God. Paul ends this section with a rather picturesque wish that his opponents would emasculate themselves. The basic idea of the statement here is he wishes that those preaching circumcision would, would slip during the operation and cut the whole thing off. And this is more than just like a, a vulgar curse. Someone in Old Testament law who had been emasculated was not permitted to come into the temple. They were not permit, permitted to worship in the temple. And Paul, in Galatians 5.3, he tells the Galatians that they receive circumcision. They are cut off from Christ. Here, his wish is that those who are preaching circumcision, in addition to the gospel, would remove themselves would disqualify themselves from, from the community because they have destroyed the central message of the gospel. So here Paul has in large part finished his protracted argument that he's been, he's been arguing for the last few, for really most of Galatians, for salvation by grace alone through Christ alone against righteousness achieved by human effort and the law. But he has a major objection to address. If we're saved by grace apart from the law, doesn't this lead to indulgence of the flesh? We've been set free from the law. We don't have to follow the law. Can we do what we wish now? Can we do what we want? We're free to act as we please and to live as we please. Paul's actually going to argue the opposite, that salvation by grace sets us free not only from our slavery to the law, but also from our slavery to the flesh. Salvation by grace does not nullify the law. It's not what the New Testament teaches. 
it fulfills the law. It enables us to follow Christ in fulfilling the law. Pick up in your, in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I want you to catch the, the disconnect here. For you are called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Freedom and service. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you devour, bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We have been called to freedom, but freedom is not in the Bible. Freedom is not in scripture, doing what I want. That is not the biblical ideal of freedom. Christ has set us free, not only from the consequences of sin, but from our slavery to our own broken passions passions and impulses. Christ has set us free from the law and the flesh. Christ has set us free from ourselves and the slavery we have to our own desires and to our own sin. We have been set free from our flesh, but are bound to God through Christ. What does Paul mean by freedom here? Think with me to to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember that they were tempted by the snake to, in a sense, declare their independence from God. That they had perfect union and perfect fellowship with God in the garden. But what, what the snake told them is, you will be like God knowing good and evil, that you don't need to trust God. You don't need to rely upon God, that you can, in some sense, be your own God. And in some sense, what Adam and Eve do in the garden is they declare their independence from God. They don't need God. They declare their independence. Think about our culture's ideal of freedom. What does freedom mean in our culture? I I think freedom is making our own decisions. It's running our own lives without interference or any hindrance. We can do as we want. We can do as we please. And nobody gets in our way. It's being able to be who I want, to determine who I'm going to be, and what I want to do. But think about freedom in Scripture. Think about freedom in the Exodus story. God did not set the Israelites free from the Egyptians so that they could live their lives independently and do what they want. What God taught the Israelites as he set them free from the Egyptians was dependence upon him. Time and time and time again, even moving out of the Exodus story, if you move into Joshua, we see time and time again these these stories where the Israelites fight these battles in really ridiculous ways. I I don't think too many generals would, would, would advise marching around a city over and over again, blowing trumpets and hope the walls fall down. The point of that story is it's God who won the battle, not them. That they're not dependent on their own military strength. They're dependent upon God. And this is the story that we see throughout the Old Testament, is that God has set them free. God is the God who set them free from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. That's the God he is. But he brought them out of Egypt so that they could depend upon him, worship him, rely upon him, and be his. And that's the same story of freedom that we have in the New Testament. Christian freedom is slavery, is freedom from slavery to the law, yes, but it's freedom from slavery to ourselves and our own passions, our own desire. It's freedom from sin. And we're now free in this somewhat paradoxical way to serve one another 
literally in the text, it's, it's to become slaves of one another. So Paul tells us the freedom that is for freedom that we've been set free, but not freedom so that we can serve ourselves. We've not been set free so that we can be independent. We have been set free so that we can be who God created us to be. We can be who God created us to be. We have not been set free from the law either because the law is void. That's not the message of the New Testament is that the law was just this bad idea that didn't work out. And now it's void. The New Testament does not teach that. It teaches that the work of, that the work of Christ uh, fulfills the law. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. We fulfill the law in Christ because through the work of the Spirit, and this is what Paul's going to go ahead and argue in the rest of if he, uh, Galatians chapter 5. We won't get to that today. But we fulfill the law in Christ because through the work of the Spirit— through the work of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that God has given to us, we will become what the law want, was designed so that we, to point to. The law points us to righteousness, but we can't fulfill this righteousness on our own. This is fulfilled through the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're not doing away with the law. We're fulfilling the law. There's a difference, if you're paying attention last week and this week, between what Paul means by keeping the law in Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, and what Paul means by fulfilling the law. He uses different words, and he's after different ideas. We're not called to keep the law and to do all the practices of the law, but we are called to fulfill the law, not because, not because we're called to be less, but because we're called to be more. The fulfillment of the law comes up three times in Paul. Here, Romans 8, Romans 13. In each case, Paul is not prescribing obedience to the law, but the correspondence between Christian behavior and what the law demands or describes. The difference is the work of the Spirit. Chrysostom says, The bonds of the law are broken, not that our standard may be lowered, but that it may be exalted. See, the law is only necessary where there is sin. The law is only necessary where there is sin. And as the work of Christ is evident in our lives, this becomes less and less important. This begins now. It's not completed now. I don't believe that we can, we'll be completely without sin in this life. But it does begin now as the work of the Spirit becomes evident in our lives. In the eternal state, we won't have laws. There won't be rules. Because we'll have a perfect sinless nature. There won't be the need for rules or laws. The law was pointing to something bigger and love fulfills the law. When God said, don't commit adultery, when God said, don't murder, when God said, don't steal, when God said, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, all of those rules are fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. If you loved your neighbor as yourself, you don't commit adultery, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't bear false witness. But as we are transformed into the image of Christ, the law is fulfilled in us, and we don't need laws, we don't need rules, we don't need regulations. It points to something bigger. Those who live according to the flesh consume and destroy each other in their attempt to dominate and get ahead. When you don't understand the gospel, when you're relying upon yourself, you're in rivalry with other people. You need to establish your value. You need to establish your worth. And you do that by consuming other people, by destroying other people, by fighting, by, by arguing. But when you really do understand the gospel, you are free to love others. You no longer need to prove to yourself 
or to prove to others that you are in. You no longer need to be concerned with whether you've done enough or not. You're free from yourself. The community saved by Christ and empowered by the Spirit seeks the best for others at expense of self. Why? Because we walk in the steps of the one who gave himself for us. We become Christ-focused, not self-focused. The freedom we have in Christ sets us free from seeking to attain and earn God's favor based on our own merits. It also sets us free from ourselves. I don't know if we think about that in terms of freedom, but it sets us free from ourselves and our selfish desires. Christian freedom is not doing what we want, but is being who God has created us to be, free from both the law and the flesh. And because we've been saved in the same way, on the merits of the same Lord, We do not have to judge each other based on our compliance to expectations, but we're free to serve one another in love and in service of Christ. Move into the section here in responding to the grace that we have in Christ. You are a slave of the one that you're dependent on. Think about the Egyptians in Egypt, uh, the the Israelites in Egypt. They 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 depended on the Egyptians for their food. They depended on the Egyptians for their clothing. They depended on the Egyptians for their sustenance. They were slaves to the Egyptians, and everything that they needed came from the Egyptians. They were completely enslaved to them. But the gospel sets us free from ourselves, from being dependent on ourselves. And sometimes we have this idea that we're a pretty good God for ourselves, but we're not. If we're going to be honest with ourselves and look at ourselves We are not good gods. We're not good gods for ourselves. We're not good gods for anyone else. We we can't solve our own problems, can we? You can't lead yourself to the promised land. You cannot conquer sin in your life, on your own, in your own power. You can't. But the gospel is the good news that your salvation has already been won, that your righteousness has already been achieved, that you do not have to earn it. You do not have to figure it out. Are you tired? Are you weary of trying and striving? Is that freedom to be self-reliant and self-dependent? You do not have to earn it. That is good news. This is good news because we do not have to earn our salvation. We are free we are free from agendas. We're free from rivalries. We're free from, we're free from judgment. And as we'll see later in the, Galatia, in the book of Galatians, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to become what following rules by itself could not do in our lives. Our church is called to be a community of grace. And this begins with your relationship with Christ. But Paul moves straight from talking about salvation um, by grace alone to talking about our love for one another the community that we're living in. To be a community of grace, we must both believe and live the gospel. And how does this work? It is not trying harder. How does, it, how does it work to be a community of grace? What does it look like to live in light of the gospel? It is not trying harder. It is drawing closer. It is not becoming independent. It is becoming dependent. Christ, Paul says, is glorified in our weakness. Sometimes we go through trials and difficulties and hardships and we feel weak. And that can be a good thing. 
it can teach us just like the trials and hardships and difficulties that the, the Israelites went through in the wilderness, that we are dependent on Christ, that we need him. The point of our trials and difficulties and hardships might be to teach us reliance, to teach us dependence, to break our self-reliance. As a church, we must be a people of grace. We must show grace to people on the outside. We must have a heart of service, not judgment. We must not return evil for evil. We must show grace to one another. We must not force each other to earn or merit forgiveness or love. That's the difference between grace and law. The expectations that we place on ourselves. You, you must do this, and you must do this, and you must be this, and you must perform. You must um, meet expectations. That's law. But grace is recognizing that we ourselves cannot meet God's expectations. And so we extend grace to others. Communities of grace. As a family... We must be families of grace. If we shout and yell to win arguments in our families or in our relationships, and we have to prove that we're right, we don't understand the gospel. But if we live by grace, we can firmly state the truth and even restate it if necessary and leave the results to God because grace understands where your value is. It doesn't need to argue. It doesn't need to shout. It's secure in your value and your place in Christ. As an individual, how do you live out grace? I, I think we need to develop practices of grace in our lives. And here, here's something that I think is important. That sometimes when we think that we're saved by grace, we start thinking of what we don't have to do. I don't have to do this, and I don't have to do this, and I don't have to do this. And you don't have to do anything to merit God's favor and God's grace. There's no checklist of things that you have to do. But why do we pray? Why do we pray? We pray because we're declaring our need and our dependence upon God. When you say, our Father who is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I need you for my sustenance. When you ask for forgiveness for your sins, you're declaring your need for forgiveness from Christ. When you bring your requests to God, or in your community groups, or to other believers, and you pray together for these requests, you're recognizing your need for God, that you cannot do this on your own. When you read your Bible, when you come to church, when you, you hear God's word, what you're saying, if you have the right heart attitude, is I don't have the wisdom myself to live my own life. It is a practice that, that teaches you your need for grace. Sometimes we can get these practices wrong. We can pray, we can read our Bibles, we can fast, we can do any number of things that is a way for us to think of how holy or spiritual, how different we are from other people. But that doesn't mean that these practices are wrong. These practices are right if done with the right spirit because they teach us dependence and reliance upon God because what the gospel teaches us is our need for Christ and our need to draw closer and to become more reliant rather than independent. God, God did not set us free from sin. God did not set us free from the law so that we could be independent, but that so, so that we could be 
dependent. Please rise, stand with me. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for the gospel. And I thank you for each person in this room, each person that you have drawn to yourself here, that you have saved based on Christ's merits. And Father, I pray that you will give them the freedom, give them the recognition of the freedom that they have in Christ, that they don't have to strive, they don't have to work, they don't have to earn. It's okay that we are tired and that we are weary and that we need you. Father, draw us closer to you. Father, make us more dependent, more reliant, more needy. Father, thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have given us your spirit, and that through the work of the spirit in our lives, that we can see more and more of this freedom that we have from ourselves, this freedom that we have from our flesh. Father, shape us and mold us through the work of your spirit into the likeness of Christ, we pray. We pray in your son's name and by the spirit that you've given us. Amen.